This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. All right, welcome back. What bars and lounges uh, have patios? Now, it, I, you know, it's weird because to me, it seems as though those patios are part of the restaurant. You can sit inside or you can sit outside. Uh, but the rule up until this week was that the patios had to close earlier than the, the rest of the establishment. So happy to see that that rule is is gone. Joining us for some further explanation, we welcome Bill Robinson to the program, president and CEO of the Alberta Gaming and Liquor Commission. Uh, Bill, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, yeah, good afternoon. Glad to be here. All right. Well, we, we've talked before, and, and I like when we have these conversations, Bill, about getting rid of, of silly, pointless rules. So I'm, I'm glad to, to be able to do that again. But just in, in a general sense, and you've made the point before, that, that a lot of these regulations, is it that they're, they're constantly being reviewed? They are. We uh, we constantly go through the regulations and the legislation to uh, to look to see what's keeping up with the uh, with the environment in Alberta and with the changing demographic, et cetera, that we have around. And uh, you know, we uh, we listen to our uh, we listen to the stakeholders. We listen to the, the people who run the bars and lounges and hotels. And uh, I'm constantly meeting with them and talking to them. And uh, they, uh, you know, that's very valuable because they let us know what's working and, and what's not. And, and quite frankly, uh, uh, we take a lot of advice and uh, to heart from them. And, and we look at uh, we look at a lot of the, the policy and legislation. It's a good it's a really good thing for us to do, especially in situations like this. Yeah. OK, well, that's, that's good to hear. All right. So the, these rules around patios uh, that used to be, I guess, well, up until this week is that the patios had to close uh, by a certain time, they had to close. What was it? A couple of hours earlier than the rest of the establishment. That's correct. Yes, and the, and the the premise behind the early closures uh, historically had been uh, noise, and uh, so uh, there was uh, regulations relative to uh, outdoor entertainment and and uh, things like that. So when it changed, when uh, we heard from the municipalities, we heard from the bar owners. Uh, the message to us was, look, uh, why don't we align these things uh, so that uh, they close at the same time that the license uh, allows for closure and let the municipalities in the larger centres handle any complaints relative to noise. And with the smaller municipalities that might not have the manpower to handle uh, the noise bylaws, we can always write the licence to uh, to handle uh, ours. So uh, you can kind of custom design it on both sides of it. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that makes sense, that uh, municipalities have noise bylaws, and, and so that should be sufficient. So why, why, was, why was that not sufficient before? It was a historic, it was a historic uh, piece. Again, the, it, the policy had been in place for over 20 years, and, uh, you know, this is, this is when we talk about the modernization of the liquor laws in Alberta and, and all of the good work that we do with government and, and the stakeholders. You, f- you come across these things, and, you know, quite frankly, to be blunt, some of them just don't make sense. So we, we pride ourselves in being able to change them. Mm-hmm. So what were you hearing from, from establishments? Uh, what was their argument for, for making this change? Well, the establishments really saw it as, uh, as an opportunity for alignment, to be able to better uh, distinguish what staff they needed for rotations. Uh, and, and quite frankly, it also allowed them in the summer months uh, when people are out and about and enjoy uh, being out uh, to, uh, to be able to extend it so that, uh, so that folks could have a, a little bit of a good time a little later on into the evening on the outdoor patios when we're able to do it. 
here in Edmonton. Was there issues around like capacity, occupancy that, that you go from having uh, your, your customers distributed where you got some inside and some outside, and then all of a sudden everyone has to be forced inside? Well, I think you know certainly that's a concern. You you know all of the licenses have uh, have occupancy requirements to them, but this was this was more of a case of alignment where it just simply didn't make sense any longer to uh, to close early, and with the uh, with the municipal bylaws able to handle it, uh, we uh, we wanted to make the change. And and you know it, again, quite frankly, it allows uh, it allows the uh, the restaurants to get maybe a little extra business where they wouldn't before. Now we saw recently as well um, the the changes to to happy hour, uh, right. which sort of speaks to to this trend of saying, okay, well, do do these regulations still make sense, uh, and and could we right. make these changes? What have you noticed so far? I think that was was June, wasn't it, where, where you announced the happy hour changes? Have, have you noticed anything uh, so far? Have you been getting any feedback on that? Yeah, the feedback on social media relative to happy hours and relative to this change has been extremely positive. Uh, the thing about the happy hour change was that it allowed, again, uh, it allowed hotels, bars, and, and lounges to be able to better plan their day for staffing, etc. And also, what it eliminated was the uh, what what I call, uh, you know, certainly load up drinking or or people trying to race, uh, you know, to the end of the happy hour or get in, and and it also allowed. The, uh, the hotels, pubs, and restaurants, and, and bars to be able to, you know, plan their day around events, and it gave them that flexibility. And uh, so far, we've heard some very good things, very positive things about the change. All right. And uh, is there any, uh, anything else on the horizon, then, that we should be uh, aware of, Bill? Well, you know, we're always, we're always looking at the policy and the legislation. Uh, you know, we're, we're very excited that we're able to uh, respond in a positive way to the industry's concerns. And, uh, you know, stand by. I mean, we'll, uh, we'll continue to look at these things and we'll change the ones that, uh, that make sense to change and, and uh, keep reviewing. So yeah. we're... Uh, we're really happy with it. We're we're quite proud of it. Like the issue of brew pubs, for example, has come up, and I know there's been some changes yes. that you've been involved in uh, changes for for policy around small breweries. And I know some of this That's is right. municipal jurisdiction, but but our rules around brew pubs are there still HGLC regulations on that front, and is that under review? Yeah, brew pubs, uh, brew pubs, tide houses, things like you brew, uh, those types of situations. We're continually uh, we're continually monitoring those and and looking at the policy around them. Uh, you know the government uh, works very, very closely with us, and uh, you know certainly uh, most recently, of course, the uh, the uh, the grant program around small brewers. You know it's all about growing jobs, uh, certainly growing jobs in Alberta, and certainly about giving uh, giving companies an opportunity to put new product into the marketplace. Something that you may have noticed if you follow the craft beer scene that uh, Alberta companies are doing in a in a great way so uh, again i think it's just great for the uh, great for the segment and i'm uh, really proud i i know some of the the brewers personally who are doing this and we're very proud of them for bringing forward these new products all right so the patios can stay open later bill can can you do something about the rain <laughs> the rain yeah well <laughs> aglc can only do so much so uh, we'll have we'll just have to take the rain as it comes i guess so bill thanks for joining us okay. appreciate Thank it you. take care bill robinson uh, president and ceo of the alberta gaming and liquor commission uh, state, I mean, it seems like a simple change um, and, again, a bit of a no-brainer. So, I mean, credit it where credit is due. 
uh, that they're willing to go back and say, okay, this law has been on the books for a long time, but doesn't really make sense anymore. Let's get rid of it. And let's let uh, bars and, and restaurants and lounges manage this as, as they see fit. Now, a lot of patios are pretty sleepy, quiet places. Uh, one of the articles I, I came across uh, mentioned on uh, 17th Ave, uh, Cilantro on 17th Ave, which is often ranked as one of Canada's 100 best patios. Uh, you know, nice, uh, almost an isolated kind of, almost looks like someone's backyard sort of patio. Not a, a wild and crazy place. Uh, someone texted to say that uh, try living near a bar. You might change your mind if you lived across from a bar with a patio. I don't mind bars being open late, but when the partygoers are sitting outside my window until 2 a.m., it's hard to get to sleep. Well, I don't understand because the law was that they couldn't sit outside until 2 a.m. That's the law that just changed. So whatever this person's referring to, that was under the, the old law, the old law that forced the patios to close earlier. I would think if there's a bar outside your window and party goers outside your window and it's Friday night outside your window, it's going to be loud. Absolutely. Anyway, let's, uh, but again, I mean, as Bill said, this is about deferring then to, to the noise bylaws that exist at the municipal level. Nine seven four eight two five five. and get some of your phone calls in here. Uh, Darren has called in. Darren, good afternoon. Well, this just brings up how slow we are to change things and how inconsistent it is. Because we were just in BC, where they have, in you know, um, supervised injection injection drug use areas. They have storefront marijuana places, and yet we were with a se- our 17 year old son starting to order a dinner at a patio in Kelowna, and they said, "Oh, it's not licensed for that," and we actually don't have any space in the restaurant to license him. and. So it's the contradiction and, and the archaic nature. Sorry, I don't see the contradiction. Uh, there, yeah. there are places that are considered bars or lounges. Minors are not allowed, right? Yeah, this is a, a restaurant, restaurant pub on on a dock in in Kelowna. So I thought that was odd, but you know, well, okay, on, on okay. top of that, well, what's you go the to contradiction? Rome, Italy, and you can have drinks on in a public square. Bring a bottle of wine to a park. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great if we could, but um, I, I, I'm not sure what you mean by contradiction still. I'm... The contradiction? So you have people about 50 years old with people 70 years old sitting with a 17-year-old at a, at a patio, and what, he's going to see someone drink? <laughs> like, what, where is our society at? <laughs> He's seen that everywhere. He's seen way worse things. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I, 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 I if still. We ordered, if he ordered a drink, right? You know what I mean? Like, well, sure, you, you can order, you can order a drink at a restaurant. If you're out with your family, if you're out with your kids, you can have a drink in a restaurant. I think you're describing a situation where business is licensed uh, then as a pub, where the, the patio is licensed as part of the pub, and under that, that license, no minors are allowed. And what it means is, is government bureaucracy. Why should there be five different licenses in the bar? Say, well, but a bar is a bar. A should a seventeen-year-old should a seventeen-year-old be allowed in a nightclub? No. Well, okay, because it's a bar, right? It's it's not for minors, right? True enough. Yeah. Okay, Darren. I appreciate the phone call. Um, so I don't, I don't see where the contradiction is. It might 
seem silly if the patio is, is essentially part of the restaurant. But I don't know that that's a contradiction in policy necessarily. And for that matter, that's, that's a separate province altogether. Uh, welcome back. Afternoons on News Talk 770. Rob Breckenridge with you. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the Harvest Hills golf course proposed redevelopment coming up after 2 o'clock. Golf course is shutting down. So what to do with that land? A lot of developers uh, have their eyes on that land. But the area, the residents in the area, that is, uh, they just as prefer it stay green, more or less, if not a golf course, maybe a park, maybe put some schools on there, but they don't want to see more houses. So we'll get into that debate after 2 o'clock. Uh, Calgary's police chief is uh, speaking out about uh, his concerns regarding lack of transparency around ACERT investigations. Which is sort of a continuing um, friction around um, the amount of which we can speak to issues, particularly when they're involved, serious issues involving the police, officer-involved shootings, etc. And making sure that um, uh, the service, and for my role particularly, we're able to speak to the community when these things happen. This is Roger Chaffin uh, on with Bruce Kenyon this morning. Uh, so ACER, the Alberta Serious Incident Response Team. Uh, if there's any kind of serious incident involving police, typically it would be uh, a police-involved shooting. But not exclusively, but that's uh, typical ACERT fair. They're the ones that investigate. When it comes to their investigations, when it comes to their findings, there is a lot that is left out. A lot of secrecy around these investigations and the question has been asked many times well why does there have to be so much secrecy around these investigations and is it significant that you've got the calgary chief of police speaking out about this uh, our next guest has uh, written uh, about this issue uh, in the pages of the edmonton journal paula simons is a columnist uh, for said newspaper edmontonjournal.com paula great to have you with us here welcome to the program nice to be back um, so there, there have been a number of high-profile cases that you cited in, in your piece recently where ACERT was called in to investigate. ACERT very tersely releases its its findings and, and little more. So is it pretty typical that there are few details included in these ACERT releases? Well, I mean, it, it goes back. I think, I think your police chief is making a, a different point, which is that the moment ACERT comes in and asserts jurisdiction, a veil of privacy is dropped. So if you think about a typical homicide investigation that a local police department would investigate, we get to know the name of the victim. We get to know, you know, if, if there are charges pending, then, you know, the name of a, a suspect. But we certainly get to know the name of a victim. In the case where ACERT asserts jurisdiction, there's suddenly a cone of silence that drops over the whole thing. So that ACERT never releases the name of the person who died or was seriously injured. ACERT never releases the name of the officer who's under investigation. Um, and that is even after ACERT completes its investigation, they keep that information sealed. Uh, when ACERT does release information, it's often years after the fact, and it comes out now not in the form of a formal report, but in the form of a couple of paragraphs in a press release. So when you say the Calgary's police chief is arguing a different point, what, what does his argument seem to be, that they well, want to be able to, to defend themselves more publicly? Well, I, I think it's a twofold thing. I mean, one... I mean, and you can see, I mean, I've been very, very critical of ACERT's uh, secrecy policies, but I can see in some instances where they don't want, while the case is being investigated, they don't necessarily want a police department that's under investigation, whether that's the RCMP or the police in Edmonton or Camrose or Calgary, um, sounding off to the media because they want to have 
an impartial investigation, and and that's the whole reason we have brought in ACERT, so that police services are not put in the difficult position of, of being asked to investigate themselves and their own officers. But what it leads to is this kind of almost comical uh, degree of muteness in which not only can can the parties involved not comment, but they can't release even the basic, most basic of information. And I think it is unfair to police officers because it creates the appearance that the local police service is being intransigent and not releasing information. Um, it's difficult for, I think, the general public to understand that the police can't release information about what happened. Uh, and certainly, you know, they can't defend themselves, but they can't also, you know, tell you the name of, of the person who died. Well, one of the cases you cite, and and people in in this city, I think, are familiar with it. The case of Anthony uh, Heffernan. He's a 27 year old and was shot and killed by police in in March of 2015. Uh, his family argues that that he was unarmed, was was tasered, and then shot by police. Had a, a history of of mental illness. But as you note, we only know his name because his family released his name. And then other troubling details about the officer involved, who's under investigation, have come out. But None of that's come directly from police or ACERT. No, and, and the problem is, I mean, the Heffernan family is getting their information secondhand, um, and, and they're coming to the public with it. We can't, you know, we can't fact-check their information, although I have no reason to believe it's inaccurate. Um, I, I don't know what their sources are either. So the public gets a very um, partial understanding of what happened, filtered through the family who are grieving and angry. Uh, and we don't know what we don't know what happened in that hotel room. We still don't know what happened in that hotel room. Um, we we you know it's very difficult to understand how an unarmed person who had no history of violence and and, and no kind of record of antagonism towards the police, uh, you know, was in some kind of medical or or psychiatric distress and ended up. And ended up dead. I mean, ACER has not completed its investigation. Um, and in the meantime, all of the officers who were involved that day are under a shadow. And the Heffernan family has to live with this lack of knowledge of what happened to, to their son and brother. So it, it creates a very difficult situation. But the Heffernans are... Uh, articulate people who know how to use the media, who know how to use social media, who've been able to get the story of their son and brother out to the public, who've been able to advocate for him and his memory very effectively. Many of the people who are uh, killed after involvement with police officers don't have that kind of family support, that kind of uh, bulwark of people who can speak up for them and be their voice when they're not there to speak for themselves. And so, I mean, as much as we know about the Heffernan case, which isn't as much as I think we ought to know, we still know far more than we do about many, many, many of the other cases in ACERT's file. The other criticism that's been made of ACERT is that they, they always seem to come down on the side of the officer. Uh, did, did you find that in, in looking into this, and does it does it necessarily suggest that ACERT is, is predisposed towards the, the police officer? Well, this is this is part of the difficulty. It's very it's very hard for any of the rest of us to evaluate the validity of ACERT's conclusions when ACERT gives us so very little information uh, about what was the basis of, of their decision not to charge and not to proceed. We get a very scanty report from them, and so it's hard to know if if they've been whitewashing or if they have legitimately cleared officers. Now, let it be said that in many of these cases, the facts that are presented do exonerate the officers. In many 
many cases. I mean, uh, we in Canada are lucky that we don't have a police service that is prone to shooting without asking questions first. Uh, Cases like this are still relatively rare. And in many cases, officers really are put in a position where they have no other choice. They have to defend themselves. They have to defend bystanders. There are a lot of cases of people who are committing a very kind of clear suicide by cop where they're goading the police into shooting them. I mean, there, there are there are many cases where I think a dispassionate person looking at the facts would say, you know, the police here had to make a terrible choice, and it's a tragedy, but the police are not, uh, are not legally culpable for what happened. But it's very hard for me to know if that is true in every case, because in some cases, ACERT releases nothing at all. One of the other wrinkles in the the Heffernan case is that one of the officers who was involved in in that shooting was apparently also under investigation in a separate shooting death, and and that's yeah, which come happened, through, which happened subsequently, right? Yeah. And that's come out through through media leaks. So if if Acer never releases the name of the officer, right? And maybe you make an argument that if an officer is found to just be doing his job, we don't need to publicize his name, but we would never know if it's the same officer who's been implicated in in multiple Acer investigations, yeah. would we? We might not know. I mean, that information might come out as it did in this case. But ACERT wouldn't announce it. No, no. Um, And this is part of the problem, too. I mean, you do not want to smear competent, responsible police officers who do a very difficult job and, and, and do it with probity. On the other hand, by not naming anybody ever, you put a whole lot of people under a cloud because then you don't know who's who's under investigation and who isn't. Uh, and, and that potentially leads, I think, to a lack of trust in a whole lot of officers. So, you know, you might then, you know, if you have no way of knowing who the potential bad actors are, how do you maintain public trust? It, it, it's, it's, it's very tricky. Now, that said, we don't release the names of criminal suspects willy-nilly either. I mean, those names come out when you know when there's a warrant for somebody when somebody has been charged so just because police suspect i mean in a civilian crime you know if if, if you shoot me because i go on and on too long and you run into commercial break um you know the you know and you flee the jurisdiction the police are not going to announce your name unless they know for sure you're a suspect they've issued a you know a warrant for your arrest they've charged you um so it's not unreasonable that we don't instantly know the name of the officer who's under investigation. The police don't always tell you when someone's under investigation. But after the fact, you'd think that that information might want to come out. And even if the officer is cleared, I mean, if, if, you've, if you've had to kill somebody in the line of duty and you're cleared, maybe you would like that information on the public record, too. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would note this. There was recently the story in Edmonton the number of police officers have been charged with uh, selling anabolic steroids. Yep. And my understanding is those charges came about because of an ACERT investigation or following the ACERT investigation, yep. right? So, you know, once somebody is charged, then that information should obviously be made public. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's very difficult when ACERT is so murky about how its information is is handled you know and they have they have two categories of things they do investigations and they do reviews and they have two sets of rules for those things so an investigation is one where they originate the investigation a review is one where 
the local people have you know investigated themselves, and then Acer checks it over to make sure that it was on the up and up. And they are even less forthcoming about the information out of reviews than they are out of investigations. So it gets very difficult indeed to see just how accountable they are. And it's a real tragedy because the whole reason ACERT was set up was to give people trust and give people the sense of transparency because everybody came to an agreement that it wasn't appropriate to have a police force investigating one of its own, that it made more sense to have an independent third-party arm's-length organization do that investigation. But the benefit of having ACERT, which was a very real benefit, is much diminished if it operates under this shroud of secrecy all the time. Okay, but ACERT answers to to these, the Justice Minister, the uh, Solicitor General, right? Yes. So the Alberta government could, could change this. The Alberta government could change this, indeed. Uh, I have been advocating that they should do so pretty much since they were elected last May. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I had a, mess, a meeting very early on with, uh, with the Justice Minister, Kathleen Ganley, and, and put it to her that this was a problem. And the answer I got back from her was the same answer I've been getting from Justice uh, under a previous administration, which is that someone's privacy rights uh, extend 25 years past their death, and we have to protect the privacy of those who have died. And I find that argument as ludicrous when an NDP government makes it as when a conservative government makes it. I find it as ludicrous when we're talking about people who are killed by police officers as, it, as I found it when we're talking about children who die in the care of children's services. I mean, I, I'm glad that we can protect people's privacy more zealously than we protect their lives. Yeah, no kidding. Paul, appreciate your time as always. Thanks so much for joining us here. Thanks, Rob. All right, Paula Simons, columnist for the Edmonton Journal, edmontonjournal.com. we got to take a break here. Back with more, your reaction as well after this. And here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. It's afternoons on News Talk 770. Uh, thanks for being with us here today, 974-8255. If you want to be a part of the program, if you got something to add, something to get off your chest, we'll have some time for your calls. We're going to talk about equalization later in the hour. Eric Hartman from the Mowat Center is going to join us. Uh, and it's an issue that came up yesterday. It's, it's come up a lot recently, in, in fact. And, and whether Alberta is getting a raw deal through equalization, especially given the, the economic downturn and everything we're dealing with right now. So how does the program work? And what does it mean for Alberta? Talk about that after 2.30. Angela Cocott will be in an hour from now. Calgary Today on News Talk 770. Uh, she's going to have more on that study out today from uh, Andrew Leach and Trevor Toome for the uh, School of Public Policy, University of Calgary, uh, casting some doubt on the government's numbers regarding this uh, power purchase arrangement lawsuit. So all of that's still to come here this afternoon on News Talk 770. Earlier this year, the Harvest Hills Golf Course in Calgary shut down. And uh, residents in the area received notice that uh, not only would the golf course never open again, uh, that the land was going to be developed. Cedar Glen Homes has uh, purchased that land. In fact, purchased it back in, in 2014, as a matter of fact. And they plan to develop that area as uh, a residential area. Now, a bit of a speed bump along the way here for the uh, proposed development. Uh, this week, the Calgary Planning Commission, uh, they were supposed to, to hold a, a meeting on this, hold a debate on this. That didn't happen. And it sounds like this has gone back to administration for further study. Now, residents in, in the area, people who already live in the area, are, are fighting against this. Uh, they don't want to see more homes built in this area. They don't believe that uh, more density is what that area needs. 
they'd rather see that remain a, a green space or maybe something that could uh, host a school or, or a rec center or something like that. Uh, so joining us for the latest is uh, David Hartwick, who is uh, the Northern Hills Community Association. David, thank you for joining us here. Thank you for having me. Uh, you were the uh, first vice president and advocacy director with the association, uh, I should note. So uh, explain, just lay it out. Here's your opportunity to, to lay out your concerns and, and where things are at on this proposal. Well, you know, this for us goes back 10 years. We've been uh, fighting with elected officials about the lack of infrastructure in this community for a decade um, with the existing people we already have. Um, our community association alone is 58,000 people, which is the size of Airdrie. So fairly significant, and yet we don't have a high school. Our, our kids are bused to three different high schools um, as far as Crescent Heights. Um, so significant different uh, distance and, and hardship. But it's not just us. There's now 37,000 more people to the north and west of us that also don't have that high school. We don't have the 24-hour diagnosis uh, and treatment center that was supposed to be built and actually approved in 2005 by the Alberta government. Um, Vivo, our recreation center, is actually the largest catchment area in the city, even after the new facilities open, with the smallest footprint. Um, the city keeps doing studies that say certain things are needed, like 2006 was an ICE study that said one rink for every 18,500 people. We now have 95,000 people using two rinks. Um, the people of Harvest Hills, their kids can't even play minor hockey. In Vivo, the facility that they helped to fundraise and build because instead people living in Sage Hill and Concora and Evanston are playing in that facility, and the people of Harvest Hills are instead going to um, McKnight. To the various arenas there but we're so short ice that it's not even that we have people driving across field and bicycle at seven o'clock in the morning for ice times our closest baseball diamonds are actually confederation park at 30th avenue 7th street so we've been battling with the city and the province for decades saying we don't have schools we don't have recreation centers we don't have baseball diamonds we don't have health facilities we don't have social services family services anything Yet we're the size of Airdrie. And if you include the neighboring communities to the north, we're bigger than Red Deer. And yet we're already forced into our cars for everything. And you know what? We love it up here. It's a beautiful area. We've got highway access to get anywhere fast. Um, the community's great. The people are great. But we don't have the infrastructure as it is. And now you want to add more people when... Already, Harvest Hills doesn't even have a public school for any grade level. They're bused all the way to North Haven. Um, so now you want to bring more people in when already the needs aren't being met? Well, it would seem to me then that, look, if, if the golf course still existed, all of those things that you just laid out would still be issues, right? That's correct. Okay, so you're, you're still dealing with that. What you're saying is that adding more people to, to the area will cause... Maybe it will exacerbate those problems, but won't the people moving into that area, people buying those those new homes, they would know that going in, though, wouldn't they? Um, I would say they probably wouldn't because a lot of those things have been promised here since we bought our homes 15 years ago, and they're still not here, right? So when you move into a community, you expect that there's going to be a high school close by or an elementary school close by. Um, you I don't know. When I bought my house, I certainly didn't look to see where the closest lab services were or family services or um, 
where my my closest uh, recreation center was, or the fact that it's been full to capacity. Right, but nobody led you to believe that. Oh, hey, we got a high school plan for right over there, and you know, there, there was no suggestion that anything had been approved. Um, well, the Calgary, um, the CBE capital plan actually had the high school in it in 2005. Where was that to go? Uh, in Coventry Hills. And it actually stayed in the capital. It was actually 2004, 2005, 2006. And in 2007, because it hadn't been built, the CBE pulled it in favor of building the Northeast High School that opens this September. That's how far behind the province is in building high schools in this city. Right. Well, as you say, that, I mean, that's, that's provincial jurisdiction, right? Correct. So the, the city can't decide anything that's regarding right. schools or, or, for that matter, health care facilities. Correct. Yeah. So but it's part of building sustainable neighborhoods, right? So as much as the city can't decide, the city can say maybe we need to change this development or slow down development, or maybe we need to do something different until the provincial government is keeping up with the infrastructure needed for the people that we're putting into houses. Well, would that I think mean- there needs to be better connectivity between government levels. Well, okay, yeah, I mean, fair enough. Uh, so, but would that mean then the city buying this land? Um, I don't think the city would buy the land. It's, um, it, it, you know, it's it's private land, and um, I understand the argument of it's private land, and and an owner can request to build what they want on private land. But if you or I want to build a, a deck on our house or a shed on our house or renovate our basement, we have to go through all sorts of loopholes in order to get permission from the city to do it. And yet somebody can walk in and say, yeah, I'm going to buy that plot of land and develop it uh, the way I want to. It seems like there's something wrong to me in that. Well, are you suggesting that, that Cedar Glen Homes could revise its proposal? I think they want to build 700 units, as I understand. If they said, okay, we'll build 300 units, would that, would that change this debate then? Um, it, it could certainly change it. Part of the fear is, is that once this land use is changed, they can actually increase the number of units. Um, and it doesn't go back to public consultation because... They've already gone through this process, so if they actually wanted to change it from 716 units to 900 units, they could actually do so. And that's part of the concern. Um, if they wanted to do 300 units, there's probably parts of this area that could, could deal with it. But the whole reason Cedar Glen has gone this route is because of the municipal development plan in Cal- Calgary. And to be honest, this proposal doesn't meet the requirements of that plan. And, and that's the biggest reason it shouldn't have even got this far, is because... The whole idea of density is to be focused on transit-oriented development. And where the golf course is is nowhere near transit. Um, Calgary Transit's already said they're not going to be changing any service or adding anything more because we're already at capacity up here. The the 301, which is our, our main bus, the BRT, is at capacity. They cannot add any more buses onto Centre Street. So... Again, how are these people going to take transit? First of all, they're nowhere near transit. And then even if they were, it's at capacity and can't accommodate them. So, yeah, 300 people is better than, or 300 residences is better than 716. But ideally, we still don't have any infrastructure to support any more people. Okay, well, but then what should become of the land? I mean, it's owned right now by Cedar Glen Homes, right? They bought the land to build homes. That's what they do. They're not a, a company that builds schools. They're not a company that builds parks. They, they build homes. So what should happen with the land? 
you know, I don't have an answer for that. I guess uh, it's buyer beware, right? And uh, they took a, a risk. Um, and if that risk doesn't pay off for them, um, they're going to have to figure out what to do with it or how to sell it. Or, um, you know, we've already heard there's there was interest in somebody else continuing to run it as a golf course because it was actually a profitable golf course and it was a popular golf course. Well, why did it shut down? I would say profit. <laughs> to be honest, um, we know it sold for way more money than what the previous owner paid for it. And um, there was an opportunity that was put forward to them. And, and like anybody else, if you're given the opportunity to make a, a, a nice profit, you have to seriously consider it. And and I think uh, in the end, that's what the previous owners did and, and saw an opportunity here. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the value is to Cedar Glen. I don't know what... They, they had to consider options if this didn't get approved, and I have no idea what those options are or, or what their plan is. Mm-hmm. Well, how much of this, though, is about those who, who bought on or near golf courses and want it to continue to be that way you know, for, for housing value reasons, for example? Is, is that part of the conversation? You know, that started as the conversation, um, certainly for, for a number of the residents. Um, but this grew to 6,000 letters being sent to City Hall. I'm pretty sure that's unprecedented in any development. Um, so there aren't 6,000 people living on the golf course. There's, you know, dozens. Um, there's that many people that are concerned about this. Uh, the traffic already is backlogged up here. So it's not just people in Harvest Hills even that are writing these letters and making phone calls. It's people in Coventry Hills, Country Hills, Panorama Hills, because this development impacts on everybody. All right. So what happened this week then? Because uh, the, the Planning Commission was supposed to to hear this, and it uh, was sent back to administration. So what, what does that mean? We don't know, actually. Um, as part of the Calgary Planning Commission process, we were allowed as the Community Association to put in a, a submission of our concerns and our objections, um, which we did so. It was 138 pages long. Um, put together by volunteers who so far, so far have put more than a thousand hours into this project um, as volunteers, and um, we basically showed a lot of the reasons why there were problems here. We even challenged some of the reports that have been done. Um, and we're not technical people; we're, we're just regular people that happen to live in the community that recognize there's a problem here. Um, and we found out on Sunday that uh, the, for whatever reason, it, it has been pulled off the agenda for Calgary Planning Commission, and we don't know anything more. Okay, because it seems like you're almost negotiating with both the company and the city, that, that perhaps the, the company could offer some, some concessions, could reduce the number of homes they're going to build, could, could de- dedicate some of this to, to green space, et cetera. But that's all the, the company can do. All these other issues around infrastructure and transit, those are all questions for the city. So whether or not these houses get built, that's something for for the city to address, right? So you're kind of battling on two fronts, it seems. We are. And, and, you know, we did negotiate with um, the developer's agent, Quantum Developments, for a while at the beginning. Um, And we have had meetings with them um, to discuss the concerns. It's been interesting in the process because Quantum Developments and Cedar Glen did not want to build residences that required secondary suites and yet members of city administration insisted they had to so even the city and the developer haven't been agreeing in the process 
um, which makes it very interesting to us is if the community has said, well, we don't want this, and the developer has said we don't want this, there seems to be confusion even in city policy of what a new development is. So whether secondary suites are actually required because this is actually an established neighborhood versus a new neighborhood, um, and nobody seems to even know what the answer to that is. All right. Well, a lot of questions going forward, that's for sure. David, uh, we'll continue to follow this story. Appreciate you joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Uh, David Hartwick, uh, First Vice President with the Northern Hills Community Association. Uh, So there, as noted, uh, actively opposed to this. There have apparently been about uh, 6,000 messages uh, received by the city over this proposal, mostly in uh, opposition uh, to it. Uh, So Cedar Glen Homes, uh, this is the area... You know, along Country Hills Boulevard in, in the Harvest Hills area. And it's obviously, as you would imagine, a, a big chunk of land was a golf course, 64 acres of land. Uh, Cedar Glen Homes is proposing a development that would add an additional 716 units to the area. So the arguments, as you heard in, in opposition to this, are, are twofold. That we didn't know it was no longer going to be a golf course. Uh, now, all of a sudden, uh, that, that's changing on us. But, but secondly, that we've got enough people in this area already as it is. We don't have enough infrastructure to support those people. You're going to compound those problems by adding another 1,500, 2,000 people. So, again, there's only so much that the developer can do. A lot of this falls to the city. But I have one text already so far here, 77770, saying, hey, it's not only... Not only that part of town, that Ward 12 has no rec facility and about 100,000 people have the same issues. Uh, keep those texts coming, 770-770. We can get to some of your calls as well here, 974-TALK, 974-8255. Some have suggested maybe the people in, in Harvest Hills just uh, getting together and, and buying the land themselves. Uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe that could be on the table. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.